0: Over the last couple of Sundays, we have occupied ourselves with some of these one-anothers of the New Testament, and in those two Sundays, uh, two weeks ago on Sunday morning, and then last week on Sunday night, and now again this morning, we've been talking about patience with and toward one another, and this morning, forbearance with one another or bearing with one another. And I mentioned to you over the last couple of messages that this this concept of patience is so very difficult for us in a fast-paced age. We are, so many of us, going at such a frenetic pace that the idea of patience with one another is almost foreign to our lives. Just sitting and pondering, and meditating, and thinking and cogitating on not only the truth of Scripture, but our Christian lives and all of the things that we should be thinking through regarding eternity and relationships and our body life as a church and all of the things that make up having Jesus as the center and circumference of our lives. And it seems to me that if the idea of a fast-paced culture tests our own patience with and for one another, that there is something else that's crept into our culture, maybe not even crept in, but actually blew through the front door, that tests our opportunity to bear with one another is social media, social media, particularly of the electronic kind. And as I was thinking about this, I picked up a brand new book off my shelf called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. Now that's a provocative title. I immediately wanted to read what the 12 ways are. And in the preface to this very good book by Tony Reinke, he sets what I think is a great introduction for us to talk about bearing with one another by saying this, this blasted smartphone, exclamation point, pesk of productivity, tenfold plague of beeps and buzzing, soulless gadget with unquenchable power hunger, conjurer of digital tricks, surveillance bracelet, money pit, inescapable tether to work, dictator, distractor, foe, yet it is also my untiring personal assistant, my irreplaceable travel companion and my lightning-fast connection to friends and family, VR screen, gaming device, ballast for my daily life, my intelligent friend, my alert wingman, and my ever-ready collaborator, this blessed smartphone. (laughs) My phone is a window into the worthless and the worthy, the artificial and the authentic. Some days I feel as if my phone is a digital vampire, sucking away my time and my life. Other days I feel like a cybernetic centaur, part human, part digital, as my phone and I blend seamlessly into a complex tandem of rhythms and routines. Tech whiz Steve Jobs, anybody ever heard of Steve Jobs? He introduced the iPhone at Macworld Expo on January 9th, 2007, as a giant 3.5 inch high res screen requiring no physical keyboard or stylus. Unlike the clunky smartphones to date, he announced, We're going to use the best pointing device in the world. We're going to use a pointing device that we're all born with, born with 10 of them. We're going to use our fingers. From that moment, The magic of multi-touch technology would introduce highly accurate fingertip gestures to a pocket device, bringing humans into more intimate proximity to their computing technology than ever before. When Jobs later announced, as an aside, you can now touch your music, the magnitude of the statement was too mystical to grasp in the moment. Apple officially released the first iPhone on June 29th. My birthday, 2007, and I bought one that fall. I marveled at the technology stuffed inside this glossy handheld phone. Now that's not right, is it June 29, 2007? You mean it's only been 10 years? iPhones seemingly have been in our lives and we can't do without them, right? A legitimate computer operating system, a newly engineered iPod for my music, a rapid new mechanism to text friends, super sharp video combined with a new mobile browser to preserve the full look of the web, and accelerometer to sense how I tip and twist and rotate my phone, all on a screen with intuitive tactile controls guided by fingertip taps, swipes, and pinches. On a road trip a few days after the sacred unboxing, Tony Reinke says, I stood outside a snowy Iowa rest stop, unlocked my new iPhone, and replied to my first rural email wirelessly, effortlessly. I was hooked, and so were millions of others, In 10 years, June 29, 2007, to 10 years later, the very summer of 2017, almost to the day, nearly 1 billion iPhones have been sold. Apple's mobile phone was followed by Android, and smartphones spread over the globe and over every corner of our lives. We now check our smartphones every 4.3 minutes of our waking lives. Since I got my first iPhone, a smartphone has been within my reach 24-7 to wake me up in the morning, to, to DJ my music library, to entertain me with videos, movies, and live television, to capture my life in digital pictures and video, to allow me to play the latest video game, to guide me down foreign streets, to broadcast my social media, and to reassure my every night that it will wake me again as long as I feed it electricity. I use my phone to keep our always-changing family schedule in real-time sync. I use my phone to research, edit, and even write sections of this book. I use my phone for just about everything, except phone calls, it seems. (laughs) And my phone goes with me wherever I go, the bedroom, the office, vacation, and yes, the bathroom. The smartphone combines several budding technologies into the most powerful handheld tool of social connection ever invented. So I was not surprised when the editors of Time Magazine named the iPhone the single most influential gadget of all time, saying that it, quote, fundamentally changed our relationship to computing and information, a change likely to have repercussions for decades to come. It's true. Oh, yes, the repercussions. What is the price of all this digital magic? I have since discovered that my omnipresent iPhone is also corroding my life with distractions. Something Apple execs unwittingly admitted on the eve of the launch of the Apple Watch, marketed as a newer and less invasive techno fix to all the techno noise brought into our lives by the iPhone. Unknown to me at the time I was unboxing my first iPhone, Steve Jobs was actively shielding his children from his digital machines. He was asked, by the way, so your kids must love the iPad. He responded, they haven't used it. We limit how much technology our kids use at home. Now, isn't that ironic? And then Tony Reinke asks this, should I be shielding myself? The makers and marketers of the smartphone wield great power over us, and I want to know what effect this technology has on my spiritual life. And I thought, yes, yes, yes. Yes, technology, particularly smartphones, tablets, other devices, other gadgets. They actually make it harder for us, not impossible, but harder for us to fulfill the one another's of the New Testament. Because we're isolated. How many times have you walked into a, family setting, even our own and others. And you see everybody sitting around on couches and chairs and nobody is talking and they're all looking at their smartphones. So true. And then when it gets all the way to chapter 11, which is entitled, We Become Harsh to One Another. He says this, While there are many one another's in the Bible, compare one another is not one of them. And yet, this is the direction we tilt online. We celebrate celebrities. We disdain nobodies. With those most like us, we grow envious and harsh. We go online to compare one another. We chide one another. We become jealous of one another. And we get dirt on one another. We fall into perfectly orchestrated judgment against one another. He says later, our phones provide many windows into this harsh reality. We see condescending comments on articles. We see snarky, judgmental remarks on Facebook. We see jolting tugs of war on Twitter. We see accusations about evangelical leaders on blog posts. No matter where the skirmishes start, they evidence an often endless and loveless war. Whether we find ourselves on the sidelines or front lines of these debates, we face a vital question, how should we handle the sins and weaknesses of people around us? And then he says this, in a smartphone society, social media will continue to serve as a powerful tool for exposing fraud, toppling dictators, blowing the whistle on crimes, and recording and exposing racial injustices. For Christians, these tools will offer us means of advocacy and social justice, and when necessary, will serve in moments when it is essential to expose ongoing sin and false doctrine that would otherwise fester in silence in churches and denominations. But what at first appears to be a noble attempt to expose past sin often goes too far and leads to a collective online vendetta, even by Christians. There's a very real temptation for those who are not called into a certain situation to attempt to judge cases remotely, and I would even say anonymously, make premature conclusions, and then attract an online groundwell, a groundswell of support. But crowdsourcing verdicts and spreading unfounded conclusions online can destroy the reputation of a Christian. This is when the script goes satanically wrong. In an age when anyone with a smartphone can publish dirt on anyone else, we must know that spreading antagonistic messages online with the intent of provoking hostility without any desire for resolution is what the world calls trolling and what the New Testament calls slander. He's right. The verb form of the Greek word used in the New Testament literally means, the word slander, to speak against. Online slander includes spreading false information and rumors about others. But biblical slander is slanderous for its end result, injured reputation. It's true. So how do we, in this gadget-crazed world in which we live, where our smartphones smartphones are at our fingertips, live out the one another's? Well, I have one, and it's right there in Colossians chapter 3. And it's the first phrase of verse 13, bearing with one another, bearing with one another. This is, this is a kind of a kissing cousin to the idea of patience with one another, bearing with one another. In fact, look at Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, and, excuse me, and patience, comma, and then almost as an explanation of what patience looks like, comma, bearing with one another. You can almost say that patience is the virtue and the way to live out such a virtue is by bearing with one another. That's how you're patient. These are These are two very related words, patience and forbearance. And the word forbearance, a nekomai, it means to bear with, to put up with, to endure one another, or quite literally, have patience, forbearing one another. I said last Sunday night, this is is what we do in our home. This is what we do in our husband-wife relationships. I said last Sunday night, I would never divorce this woman my wife. She would never divorce me because it's not God's will. It's not God's best. It's not God's plan. It's not God's purpose. And short of what the Bible may allow for such a thing, the idea, the principle is this. I love her. She loves me. I confound her with some of the things I do. And she loves me nonetheless because she has biblical patience, And divine forbearance lived out by God through her soul to mine. And vice versa. She puts up with me. I put up with her. And the the analogy of Christ's relationship to His bride... He's the divine groomsman. He's the uh, the one who is that who is looking to his bride. He's the one to whom that bride will look to chasten her, to endure her, to shape her, and to mold her into the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the church is seen analogically in this idea of the marriage, you would never leave Christ. Christ would never leave you. Why? Because we are patient with one another. We are forbearing of one another. We put up with one another. That's what we do. It's because of who we are. We're the body of Christ. We live together in a, in a union, the union of Christ. That's, that's what he's saying. That's, that's a part of what it means to stand against no matter what happens. And it's true what Tony Reinke says. Social media has created an anonymous, villainous way to have my comments made public, even if nobody else knows who I am. I'm able to to comment on anything, Facebook, Instagram, I'm, I'm able through Snapchat, I'm able through email, I'm able to do so many things in my communication to others in such a way that if there is something I don't like in the world, I can express myself doing it and it's created, I fear, a kind of habit forming for which if we don't like something in the church, what do we do? We make a comment. We talk. We express our angst of soul we, we, may, we may do it not always verbally, but we can do it with a smartphone, we can do it with a comment card, we can do it to a neighbor, we can talk about the leadership, we can, we can do whatever it is so that my point is expressed. Now sometimes, questions of concern, follow-up statements, hey, I want clarification, those are great, those are fantastic, those are necessary. And it's also necessary for us to hold each other accountable with regard to sin in the life. And the Bible speaks of those things very clearly. Matthew 18, Colossians chapter 3, here's one. Here's what we're to do. If we're holy and beloved, if we're God's chosen ones, then our diet, our exercise, our habit is compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And how do we express those things? We bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, we forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And our standard, our standard of measure, our plumb line, our authoritative source, verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And by the way, dwell in you richly? Who's Paul talking to? An individual? No, the church talking to the Colossian church the you here is plural it's not just me taking my bible and having a, a a very sweet but private quiet time as wonderful as those are he's saying church church in Colossae you corporate believers all of you together let the word of Christ dwell in you church richly that's why we preach 7.30 7:30 to11:30 worship service. I like that. There might be a Facebook comment about that later. Look at Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four. This is a parallel epistle of Paul. To the Colossians, and vice versa. And in chapter 4, listen to how we are supposed to respond to and be a part of one another. Chapter 4, verse 1 I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Bearing with one another in love. There it is again. Patience. And then the participle. How you express such patience by bearing with one another in love. Putting up with one another. Oh, what she does just confounds me. Can't believe he's like that. Why does he always do that when he preaches? Why does she always sit in the same spot? Doesn't she know that that's where I want to sit? I mean, whatever it is, from the ridiculous to the sublime. We've all got opinions. Of course we do. The great art and skill, in my judgment, of living together in the body of Christ is in the midst of Of your 1,132,763 opinions, you keep 98% of them to yourself. That's the art of it. I've got so many opinions. And I want to keep the vast majority of them to myself. Why? Why? Because that's only what they are. Opinions. Opinions are like noses. Everybody has one. And they are shaped and molded into the very things that I am desperately wanting somebody else to do. And they're not doing it. And when they're not doing it, it inflames me. And then I can begin to say about them... I don't like them. I don't like what they're doing. I don't like the way they're behaving. I don't like this and that. And that's not talking about sin that needs to be dealt with. That's not talking about that, which the leaders need to know, or the leaders need to work to shepherd. Uh, We're not talking about any of those things. We're talking about opinions. We're talking about, as it were, at times, uh, non-biblical value judgments, personal opinions. And when we express those, they can turn into things that are the very opposite of patience and bearing with one another putting up with one another. I mean, with all of our faults and foibles, with all of the things that we do and say, the idea that the watching world, unbelievers who would come into our midst, who would sit among us, who would observe us, we need them to be able to say that which was said about the first century Christians, those in Rome particularly, oh, how they love one another, oh, how they love one another, Yes, a million opinions in the sea. most of them need to stay deeply buried, right? Look at chapter second uh, Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter eleven. Paul actually uses in second corinthians chapter eleven a little bit of sarcasm. Now, you have to be very careful when you use sarcasm, and it would be good to be an apostle if you use it, yeah. especially under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in writing Scripture. And here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, verse 1, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. There's that idea of bearing with one another, right? I wish you'd bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Do put up with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you. For I betrothed you to one husband, that's Christ, that's that groomsman, that's that that husband, I betrothed you, church, Corinthian church, to Christ, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What does he mean? He's saying, look. I'm telling you that I've discovered that inside your church, which is not the building but the people, inside your relationships with each other, I find that you are far more adept at actually bearing with things you shouldn't bear with and the things like me and my apostolicity and my correction of you and my challenging of you and my admonitions of you, you don't want to bear with at all. In fact, notice what he says there in verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, the Holy Spirit, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, you're willing to put up with that? You're willing to endure That? You're going to bear up under false gospels and false teaching and false Jesuses and false spirits? Verse 5, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles, that is the false guys, the ones who are claiming they're real apostles when they're not. That's why he calls them super apostles as though they're the true and he says they're not true at all. They're presenting to you a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different Holy Spirit. Verse 6, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, even if you don't think I'm really persuasive as a speaker, I'm not so in knowledge. I gave you the true gospel. Everything was made plain to you in all things. It's amazing, he says. Look down at verse 19. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. That's that sarcasm. For you bear it, you put up with it. There's our word. If someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you, which is exactly what these super apostles are doing, and they put on heirs, they're fakers, they're charlatans, or they strike you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. See the dripping sarcasm there? You know what he's saying? He's saying, how is it that you as a church would be so willing to bear up under all of the gospel tomfoolery, but I come along as an apostle, the one truly chosen by God, the one who's willing and ready and actually did give you the true gospel. And now you're saying, oh, Paul, do we have to put up with him again? Do we have to bear with him again? Another one of his severe letters? I think not. You know, I've got an opinion about that bald old man. They even said, "Paul, even, even your personal presence is contemptible." I, when I went to Little Rock, I actually had a, pu- a couple of people in the first couple of years say, "You know, you need to get rid of those California suits." You know, I wore a couple double-breasted suits. You know, and it was like that's not in style. Does he not get that? I had another guy say, "You know, is there a way that you can change your hairstyle?" is this not true and i thought to myself i'm in a sea of opinions and all of those things are utterly inconsequential right i'm not up here for me i got a haircut recently i look i'm in, I look like i'm in the army now my hair is like a porcupine Sometimes, you know, after a good meal, I can't even fit into this jacket. You know, these are the things that we all have judgments about, do we not? And yet, even with someone who would take such liberties and even say something out of their mouths to someone like that, we're still going to bear with them. We're still going to put up with them. And that's what you do in your family. Why don't we do that in the family of God? Oh, but someone comes along and says, yeah, well, they're pretty judgmental there. I'm going to go to the next church. Yeah, well, I didn't like their attitude, so I'm gone. Or, and this is tougher, we come to them and we say, brother, sister, we love you, and we want you to be around, but you need to curb your opinions. You know, what you're saying is not black nor white. It's just your own judgment. It's just your own perspective, and we've got a response for you. Would you please stop? Because it's not loving. It's not gracious. It's not kind. Now, we all do it. And I preach a better message than I live. But I'm preaching. And I see what Paul is saying here. Bear with me. Bear with me. You know, there's in Scripture, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, a time will come when people will not put up with bear with, endure sound doctrine. I think we may be in that age, right? We're in the latter days of the latter days. And I think we need to learn the new art as a church. We're on the hill, glowing for the world to see, how to bear with one another. How to put up with one another. And we're, we're ugly and cranky and... We- we get up on the wrong side of the floor almost every morning, most of us. Someone takes the surprise out of our cereal. I mean, we, we just at times are having a bad day. And yet, thank the Lord, He still loves us through all the gunk. He puts up with us. I mean, the next time we, that is you or me, we're tempted to not bear with one another because of the unchanging opinions that they may share with us, remember how much God loves us, how much He bears with us. I, I fear that if I were to watch a video screen just above my head, like one of those cartoon boxes of all the things that I think but never say, what would the Lord think of me? What would be in the video if He were to be speaking above my head? Oh, Lance, Lance. Lance. Oh, my dear, dear son. Move on from that. Give it up. Let it go. Love, cherish, put up with, bear with one another. Maybe the opposite is the title of Tony Reinke's chapter, Do Not Be Harsh with One Another. Can you tell it's a new day at Bethany Church? It's a new day, my friends. You know why? Why? Because we're going to be people of the book. We're going to be people of this book. Very practically. Very practically. I'm not saying that we're all on a crusade to confront one another. But I am saying love champions all. Because faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We're going to champion the idea of putting up with one another Bearing with one another because it is one of the one another's. And I close with this. The Westminster Larger Catechism, Tony Reinke quotes from, it's question number 144, explains so well what we're all about. Here's what it says. A call for a charitable esteem of our neighbors. I like that phrase. A charitable esteem of our neighbors. Loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name. You know how that like the book of Proverbs says that a man's good name, his reputation is better than gold. It's better than gold. Sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities. Freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending of their innocence, a ready receiving of a good report, and unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers. Now that's a doctrinal statement I can get my hands around. Again, it restrains us from spouting guesses. Tony Reinke says about the motives and intentions of others. Boy, that's that's so common, isn't it? The judgment of motives, the assumption of motives. That's why in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says about those who are questioning in Corinth as motives, he says, I do not even examine myself. But herein, by that, I'm still not acquitted because the one who examines me is the Lord. Tony Reinke says, God wants us to practice the discipline of covering the sins of others in love as we give them space for discipline when needed and for personal repentance. We acknowledge the often unseen and invisible work of the Holy Spirit in the world to bring conviction of sin, and so we walk by faith knowing that God is at work in His children. So true. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the easiest work in the world is to find fault. Yes, and the tools to spread, Tony Reinke says, our findings have never been simple or more powerful. A quarrelsome man who desires to ignite strife and fan it into a flame of contention will surely find his way to the kindling of social media. With social media, we can now harm and embarrass and stigmatize people with greater force than ever before in human history, warns Pastor Ray Ortland. Self-restraint has never been more important. Each of us has an inner troll, an inner slanderer. Some part of us would love to text some dirt to a friend, publish dirt online, and anonymously consume that dirt online. If the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels, then online comments are like an all-you-can-eat buffet. And who can fast in the presence of a buffet? Fault finding is an ancient hobby meant to prop up a facade of self importance, even among Christians. Fault finding destroys our love for others. Fault finding runs contrary to Calvary. In Christ, our pardoned sins are plunged into a grave. But the slanderer keeps going at night to exhume his neighbor's sins in order to drag those decomposing offenses back into the light of the city square. See the picture? I mean, those things are buried in the deepest grave, pardoned by Jesus Himself, and we want to exhume the remains and bring it to the light of the day and just push it right into the city square and say something like this, Did you hear what so-and-so did? Oh, my. Scandalous, I say. And the very thing we're doing in bringing to light what may be scurrilous or may be true or may not, is the very thing that we're doing, gossiping about it. Let's work toward this body. No gossips, no slanderers, no tale-bearers, no fault-finders. Let's be loving, gracious bearers with one another, shall we? Let's pray. Father, this this is Your will. This is Your purpose for us. I stand among our body as... Undoubtedly one who is guilty of all. Maybe even more so than my brethren who sit and hear me preach. Forgive my sins. Make me a, make me a better pastor in addition to a better preacher. Make me a better person than just being a better communicator make me a noble christian who watches his mouth make your will and purpose with our speech toward one another the use of our tongue the bearing with one another the patience that we are marked by as christians or so we should be oh father give us a kind of fellowship give us a kind of church for which unbelievers say, I must go there. I've been looking for this my whole life. I've been looking for authenticity. I've been looking for integrity. I've been looking for people who won't talk about one another in the shadows. I, I want to be liberated from my own gossip, my own tale bearing, my own false reports, my own evil, wicked speech. And for us, Lord like Isaiah in chapter 6, clean my mouth. Take the the tongs of repentance and the, the fires of faith and cleanse my lips and cause me to be the kind of person for whom it was said even of Jesus, oh, the gracious words that were falling from His lips, even from a crowd who later wanted to destroy Him. must have been something to hear the graciousness of the Savior. Bring that grace to us. Allow our church to be transformed from the inside out. A city set on the hill, glowing for the world to see. In Jesus' name, amen.